I would invite you to please open up in your Bibles this morning to the prophet Obadiah. And as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand once again this morning for the reading of God's holy word. If you've been with us for the last couple, two, three weeks or so, you'll know that we are working our way through the prophet Obadiah. Uh, by God's grace this morning, we are going to conclude that sermon series, and uh, next week we will begin working verse by verse through First Timothy in the New Testament. But this morning, we find ourselves at the end of the prophet Obadiah. And so I'm going to read in your hearing, beginning in verse 15 through verse 21. And as has already been said, I just want to reiterate, as we gather and as we stand and as we open God's word, we are not hearing merely the voice of a man, but we are hearing the voice of God. And so let us humble ourselves now and give attention to the word of the Lord, for this is what God says to his church. Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. It shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Cephala shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad and shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. There seems to be something of a hopelessness that affects many today. Something like a, like a thick fog has descended upon the hearts and minds of, of not just a few. Roughly a hundred years ago or so, this was expressed by the English playwright Noel Coward this way. In this strange illusion, chaos and confusion, people seem to lose their way. What is there to strive for, love, or keep alive for? Say, hey, hey, Call it a day. More recently, Breaking Benjamin, a contemporary rock group, they sang, Silent I go under, I am not afraid. I can see the daylight shine and slowly drift away. Safe to say it's over, sink into the grave. There is nothing left inside, but I am wide awake. I can hear the devil call my name. Now, church, there are many who suffer from this sort of affliction. They live their lives, but all the while they are hopeless. And what we have to understand is that when people become hopeless, they die, even though they are alive. We should note, though, that this attitude of hopelessness is not new. No doubt, while things like social media and the 24-hour news cycle have sort of exacerbated it, this has been there all along. 
Ever since the fall of humanity into sin, people have been hopeless. And to be candid, we should say that apart from the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, life is hopeless. And this hopeless attitude, it would have been quite familiar to those of Obadiah's day. You will remember, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, Jerusalem has been laid waste. The the people of God, they have been uprooted from the promised land. They've been deported. And the very temple of God, this, this sort of visible and physical dwelling place of God Almighty on earth, it has even been demolished. It's as if God has cast off his people. Beloved, It's as if God himself has been defeated. But it is into that hopeless void that the triune God speaks. And God's word, it comes to us this morning just as it did to those of Obadiah's day. God's word comes to us as a word of deliverance and a word of destruction. It is a word of deliverance for the people of God. And it is a word of destruction for God's enemies. In other words, there really is hope. Now, to understand this, we have to briefly acquaint ourselves with a phrase. And the phrase is found there at the beginning of verse 15. It's the phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, if you are a student of Scripture, which I trust that you are, then such a phrase will not be too unfamiliar to you. It is found throughout the prophets, most notably in Joel and Amos. But it's something, it's a theme as well that that the apostles of the New Testament pick up on too. To which you respond, okay, fair enough, but, but what is it? What does it mean? What is the day of the Lord? Well, in short, it's the day when God himself will intervene in human history. And he will do so to punish rebels for their sin. And at the same time, it's a day in which he will rescue those who are his. That's sort of the the Old Testament idea of the day of the Lord. With With the full blossom of the New Testament, we see that really the day of the Lord is the day in which Christ will return to consummate his kingdom. He's gonna he's gonna resurrect the dead. And he is going to consign the wicked to hell, and he is going to escort the righteous to a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, the day of the Lord is both a bad day and a good day. It really just depends on where you are at with Christ. You might consider the flood of Genesis 6, which acts as something of a microcosm when it comes to the day of the Lord. From the perspective of those who were washed, in the, washed away in the flood, it's a bad day, isn't it? It's a day of wrath. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of reckoning. But for Noah and for those who are safely aboard the ark, well, that same day is a day of salvation, isn't it? A day of deliverance. So what you have to see is we're talking about the same day, but two very different outcomes. And church, that's the picture here. In the prophet Obadiah. The day of the Lord is a good day for Jacob, and it's a really bad day for Edom. Now, speaking of Jacob and Edom, 
we also need to clarify who and what they are. Who and what they are. In terms of who, remember, Jacob is another name for God's people. You see the the language there at the end of verse 17. And the house of Jacob. Or again, at the beginning of verse 18, the house of Jacob. Church, that's Old Testament talk for for Judah, for the covenant people of God. So so we're talking about God's special people. Well, then you have Esau. And his name comes up twice in verse 18, once in verse 19, and then once more in verse 21. And you will remember that Esau was Jacob's twin brother. And the Edomites come from him. Now that's who they are in their historical sense. But there is more to the story. There's also what they represent. And Jacob here represents God's people. Again, this is the covenant people of God. And so today, with the, with the fullness of the new covenant, Jacob is something of a type for the church. He represents the people of God under the old covenant. And then you have the Edomites. The way that the whole day of the Lord is cast here, and and the way that Edom comes to represent, verse 15, all the nations, I think we can safely say that Edom stands for God's people's enemies. So when it comes to the day of the Lord, Edom is symbolic of all those who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, who refuse to receive his gospel, and who refuse to walk in his ways. And instead, what do they do? Well, they persecute the people of God. Edom is, if you like, Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. Well, what this means, among other things is that we have to understand that that the localized disasters that are befalling Edom and Jerusalem are not merely isolated incidents in a remote and insignificant theater of war. No. Instead, such events mark the very footsteps of the Lord himself as he approaches to set up what Daniel 2.44 calls a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Or if I can say it a little bit differently and perhaps more simply, the historical defeat of Edom in the past is something of a preview of the judgment Christ will unleash upon all unbelieving nations in the future. Now, with that in mind, let's see what God's prophet would tell us about this day of the Lord, specifically viewing it from Edom's perspective. What makes this a day of destruction? Let me give you four words to describe it. First, we are told it is near. That's what verse 15 tells us, right? For the day of the Lord is near. It's not far off, the prophet says. The prophet says it's, it's near. And don't miss the massive encouragement that this would be to Obadiah's original congregation. The prophet is telling them the day of God's reckoning is coming. Yes, you are suffering. Yes, things look bad right now. Yes, Edom is on top. Yes, you are being persecuted. But God will vindicate you. And that day is near. Church, do we not hear those same words ringing in our ears? Do do we not hear Scripture calling to the church, be watchful, 
Be alert. Stand firm. Yes, it's true the church suffers at the hands of unbelieving nations, but Christ promises us that the day is coming when he will return and he will right all these wrongs. Now, in light of this idea of the nearness of the day of the Lord, two comments are in order. For starters, this day was near with respect to Edom, wasn't it? And I know, we all know this because I've asked you before, have you ever met an Edomite? And the answer is no, of course not. And that's because God, as foretold by his prophet Obadiah here, he has wiped them off the face of the earth. But at the same time, and here's the second comment that must be made, it's rather obvious that the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet in the sense of Christ returning, right? Edom has been destroyed, but... I really hope that this right now isn't the new heaven and the new earth. This is a pretty big letdown. So how do we handle this? How is it near in Obadiah's day and still not fulfilled in ours? Because thousands and thousands of years have passed. So what gives? Well, I'm actually going to let that hang there for a quick moment. And I'm going to let it hang there because it relates to our second word. It's the word all. To see it, follow along again in verse 15. Because we read, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. So if you ask, well, well, who's in view here? And you could say, well, Edom is, right? And And that's true. But not just Edom. This is a judgment that will, according to the prophet, include all nations. And we should be quick to note, America is not exempt. So to return to that cliffhanger about how this day is near, how does all of this work? Well, it goes by a few different names. Some refer to this phenomenon as what's called prophetic foreshortening. You have to have letters after your name to say that kind of stuff. Others, perhaps more helpfully, call it telescoping. And so here's the big idea behind this. In the prophets... You often have future events, and they're all sort of lumped together. And it leads you to believe, at least initially, that all of this stuff is going to be fulfilled and and, and kind of come to fruition at the exact same time. But further revelation makes clear that these events that might have initially appeared to occur all at once, well, sometimes they're actually separated in time. Let me give you something of an example that maybe some of you parents and some of you young people can relate to that I I think will help make sense of all of this. Think, for example, of the teenager who longs to acquire a driver's license and with it a sense of freedom. So he asks dad and mom, when can I get my driver's license? And dad and mom respond, well, you can get your driver's license when you turn 16 years old. And so, as that day quickly approaches, the young man grows with excitement until finally the day of his birthday arrived, and and he turns 16, so he he runs upstairs to his parents, He, he, he knocks on their door in the morning, and he says, time for my license, to which his parents say, yeah, hold on, have, have you logged all your driving hours, have you passed your written exam, have you, have you passed your drive test? Do you have all of the insurance figured out on this thing yet? 
But for this young man, it's 6 a.m., and it's his birthday, and he's ready to cruise. Here's the point. There are several events that are all compressed together with that one idea, you can drive when you turn 16. But in reality, it does not mean that at 12.01 a.m. on the morning of his birthday, that dad and mom are going to unilaterally just throw him the keys, right? I think that's sort of what's going on here. The prophet is speaking about the day of the Lord, a day of destruction for all of God's enemies. Again, verse 15 says, all the nations. But Edom's specific destruction It occurred before that great and terrible last day. Which means, please hear this, the wrath of God poured out upon Edom in time and space and history. It is something of a preview. It is something of a trailer for judgment day coming at the end of the age. Or to say it differently, what Edom experienced back on that day so too will all nations experience someday. Just as Edom was completely wiped out, so too all of God's enemies will be completely wiped out. Because that's what the day of the Lord is. It's a day when all the nations will stand before the risen Christ and they will have to give an account to him. So what did Edom experience? Well, that brings us to our third word, and that's the word judgment. Look at the haunting language there of verse 16. For as you, that that is Edom, for as you, Edom, have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they have never been. Or verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. And those of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Now these are two horrifying pictures, are they not? The first is that of a drunkard. And, and it pictures Edom in a, in a drunken orgy of conquest that took place the day Jerusalem was overrun. That's what is meant there in verse 16 by my holy mountain. Well, well again, that's Old Testament talk for, for Mount Zion, for, for Jerusalem. So picture the scene. Here is Edom, and she is on God's holy mountain, and she is partying at Jerusalem's downfall on God's holy mountain. But now, the prophet says, well, Edom is going to drink once more. And it's not going to be just Edom who drinks, but it's going to be all the nations. And church, they're going to drink and drink and drink. In fact, they are going to drink themselves into extinction. That phrase there in verse 16 that the ESV renders, shall drink continually. It's an expression that means to slurp or drink noisily. And it underlines the torture of having to drink without stopping. It's sort of like the ancient version of waterboarding. They are just guzzling and guzzling and guzzling. What are they guzzling? The very cup of God's wrath. 
Just as God's people were forced to drink down the judgment from the hand of the Babylonians, so now the prophet says all the nations of the world are going to be forced to drink down the cup of God's judgment. And they're going to drink themselves until there's nothing left. The second and horrifying picture is the one found in verse 18. The people of God are said to be a fire and a flame and eat them stubble. And the prophet leaves little to the imagination because he tells us in verse 18, they shall burn them and consume them to the point that what? There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you hear what God's word is saying? The day of Christ's return, judgment day, it is for those who are outside of Christ, a day in which no rock will be left unturned. Every single person will stand naked and exposed And they will do so before the all-holy, resurrected, and reigning Jesus Christ. And they will stand before Christ. And Christ will not stand before them as Savior, but as judge. And because of their sin, they will be condemned to hell. To which we might be tempted to respond. Pastor, that that sounds harsh. That sounds rough. I mean, that even almost sounds unfair. Which leads us to our fourth and final word with respect to this day being a day of destruction. And that is the word just. Look back up at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you, he's talking about Edom here, as you, Edom, have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds, again, speaking of Edom, Edom's deeds shall return on your own head. You hear what God is saying? There's nothing unfair about any of this. In fact, Edom is getting exactly what she deserves. Perhaps you are familiar with that Latin phrase, lex talionis, literally, law of the tooth. It actually comes from the law of God, most notably Exodus 21. Here's what we read. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now I'm not going to go into all of it now, but the whole point of this law is that it is to ensure that the punishment does not exceed the crime. The idea is that the punishment should fit the crime. That's the point. Life for life. Eye for eye. It's not life for eye, but eye for eye. Right? Now, I say that to say this. That's exactly the idea that God is expressing here through his prophet. That's what judgment is. Church, that's what hell is. Hell is the just and equitable punishment for sin. In a very profound sense, hell is life for life, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. Some people, even Christians, they hear sermons about hell or they read about hell in their Bible and they sort of wince. We, we, we think to ourselves, this is too much. It's too harsh. I mean, this borders on unfair. And if I can just be completely candid with you, That attitude is not just plain wrong, it is actually sinful. And it is sinful on our part because we think we know better than God. It's sinful on our part because we think that we have a better grasp of what justice is than God himself. 
which is utter nonsense. Every person who ends up in hell, every person who ends up being judged before God, they end up getting exactly what they deserve. You have to understand, no one is shortchanged, nor does anyone receive too much punishment. No, hell is exactly what we deserve. Hell is exactly what we have earned. Hell is the payday for punching the clock of sin. And that payday, it is absolutely just. It's just. That's the bad news about the day of the Lord. But remember, this one day is not just a day of destruction, but also of deliverance. For God's enemies, it's destruction. But for God's people, this is good news. So Christian, let me give you now four words. This time, four words that describe the return of Christ for his church. First starters, rescue. It's rescue. And to see where I'm getting that, put your eyes on verse 17. Because in verse 17, we read, But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. Now catch this. God's people, despite the evil intentions of Edom, God's people, we are told, they will survive. They will escape. And all of this, of course, is in contrast with the enemies of God in verse 16, who will be as though they had never been. Remember, Edom will be burned and consumed so that, verse 18, there will be no survivor for the house of Esau. But God is saying that is not the case with God's people. That's not the case with Jacob. That's not the case with the church. We will endure. So take heart this morning, dear Christian. The day of the Lord is not for you a day of menace but a day of mercy. As terrifying as some of this stuff can be, for the Christian, the day of the Lord is a day of vindication. It's a day of triumph. It's a day of rescue. You, you, you need to know this. You need to get this settled in your minds right now. Christ shed his blood to rescue you. Christ shed his blood to redeem you. And on that day, when you see him, all your, your suffering. All your anxiety, all your sin, all your, your paltry faithfulness, right? Your divided heart and your incomplete obedience, it will all give way to and pale in comparison with the glory of your Savior's face. And when you see the face of your Savior, you will not be met with a frown, but with a smile. Think back to the people of God as they marched out of Egypt after that tenth plague. While God's enemies hung their head low, the people of God had their heads held high. Lift up your head, Christian. For on his cross, it's true, Christ has rescued you. And when he returns on the last day, he will rescue you. So rejoice, Christian, for this is a day of good news. Let me share with you a second word. It's the word renewal. Renewal. Once again, contrasting Edom and God's people, verse 17 tells us, but, notice the conjunction, 
But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Well, what, what, what shall be holy? What is the it there in verse 17 that shall be holy? And the answer is Mount Zion. That is to say, the temple of God and all that it stood for. Remember, under the old covenant, the temple of God is where God made his unique covenantal presence known to his people. So picture the scene. This the very place where such desecration has occurred. The epicenter of Jerusalem's fall and Edom's triumph, right? In Obadiah's day, it's nothing but ash, a bitter reminder of former glory. What's the promise? Well, the promise is there's coming a day when it shall be holy again. Like former times, it will be set apart by God and set apart for God. It it will be purified and cleansed and renewed. Dear Christian, this too is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and in his church, isn't it? We're not a people who look forward to some physical temple in Jerusalem. No, our hope is in Christ, he who is the temple for God's people. Through Christ's sacrifice and the Spirit's grace, we really do meet with the Father. We worship God through Christ. We receive grace in Christ. God demonstrates his love for us by Christ, and our very lives are lived for Christ. Christian, by being in Christ, by by our faith union with him, we are renewed. Beloved, the Bible says that we are made holy. I don't always feel holy. I don't know about you. But God's word is bigger than my feelings. Because of Christ, we are holy. Consider this for a moment. When we gather together for worship on the Lord's Day, like right here, right now, in this very moment, we do not do so at the physical Mount Zion, do we? But, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews tells us, but you, speaking of the church, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to an innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here we are, Christian. We are gathered in the heavenly Jerusalem. We are brought up by the Spirit of God into the presence of God through the work of Jesus Christ. And we are surrounded by angels. And there is a blood in this holy temple that speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Why? Because Abel's blood cries out from the ground for judgment. But the blood of Christ shed for us sings of grace. And it sings of grace because judgment has already been meted out on Christ for us. That's why we can be ushered into God's presence. That's why we are made holy. That's why the day of Christ is a day of renewal for us. Why? Because all our sin has been taken away. 
Let me put before you now a third word. It's the word restoration. Keep tracking with me in verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob, we are told, shall possess their own possessions. That is to say, they will again reside in the promised land. God says here that he is going to restore the blessings of the covenant to them. This is also what's meant by all of those really hard words to pronounce down in verse 19 and 20. What is being described there is really the restoration and the expansion of God's people. I hate to keep going back to this, but we need to keep our context in mind. Remember, Obadiah is prophesying following the destruction of Jerusalem and the, the, pretty much the obliteration and deportation of God's people. Their land, it has been taken over. It's been forfeited by the conquest of Babylon and by the piling on of Edom. And so what do God's people hear? What's the promise to them? Well, they will once again reclaim their land. As unbelievable as that might have sounded to Obadiah's congregation, God here is promising restoration. More than that, though, their land, their possessions, it will not only be restored, but again, it will increase and expand. That's what's meant there in verse 19 with the mention of Mount Esau. Still in verse 19, the land of the Philistines the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, as well as the people of Benjamin possessing Gilead. The, the prophet is saying that God's people will possess not just their own land, but that they're also going to possess the land of their enemies. Here's the deal. This whole thing is set up like a compass. If you put Jerusalem at the center, well, Mount Esau lies to the south. And the land of the Philistines is to the west, and Ephraim and Samaria are to the north. And as you probably will have guessed it, Gilead is to the east. Technically, it's kind of northeast, but you get the idea. And the point is that God's people are going to be restored to their land, and they will push out from there and expand their territory and come to possess the land of their enemies. But again, the caterpillar of the old covenant becomes a butterfly in the new covenant. We have to see that the promise is much bigger than merely some soil in the Middle East. Again, as the author of the Hebrews teaches us, the patriarchs acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And I'll circle back to this in a couple of moments. But the promised land, like all the old covenant types and shadows... It points to something bigger and better. That's what types do. Now, I see the time is escaping us, so let me give you the fourth and final word here. And that's the word rulership. You'll see that Obadiah ends his prophecy in verse 21 where he writes, saviors or deliverers or, or judges or rulers, any one of those translations would work. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to do what? To rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Do you see how this whole thing has been flipped on its head? Do you see the reversal that has taken place? Because in Obadiah's day, Mount Zion was destroyed and overrun by Esau, right? 
But what is Obadiah saying? Well, there's coming a day when Mount Esau will be ruled by Mount Zion, right? Those who are defeated now, God's people, they will rise from the ashes and be triumphant. They will rule over their enemies. And the question for us is what are we supposed to do with all of this? We see these these four words of deliverance, right? Rescue and renewal and restoration and rulership. But the question for us as, as Christians living some thousands and thousands of years removed, where do we go from here? Where is all of this leading? Well, some have suggested to see the fullness of Obadiah's words, we need only look back to the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the time when the exiles returned from captivity into the promised land. And while I will grant that there is a kernel of truth in that idea, it seems to me that the promises of God here and throughout the Old Testament, they're too big to be sort of squeezed into that small of a container. Still others, they will point us to the earthly ministry of Christ and the kingdom that he established, the kingdom of God. And and I do think that such a proposal is closer to the truth. But in my mind, it still seems to fall short. The kingdom of God, the, the kingdom of Christ's first coming, it was something of an acorn. But if we really wish to see the mighty oak tree, if we really want to see the fulfillment of all of Obadiah's words then as I've already suggested, we actually need to look to the future. We need to look to the future, to Christ's second coming, the consummation of the kingdom. And I think that is where we find the the sort of full-throttled deliverance that Obadiah speaks of. I say that because on that day, the day when Christ returns, the people of God will know their ultimate rescue, won't we? We'll know our rescue from God's enemies, and not just physical enemies, but spiritual ones too. Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But on the day of Christ's return, we have to see that war will forever end. We will be rescued. It's on that same day when the church militant will become the church triumphant and we will experience gospel renewal. Think about this. Think about this truth. In resurrection glory, we will be completely freed, not just from the penalty of sin and not even just the power of sin, but we will be completely freed from even the presence of sin. We can't even imagine that. On that day, when the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to us, and we behold the glory of God and the the light of the Lamb, we will know and we will experience and we will taste holiness and glory in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine, even our most sanctified state here and now. 
On that same day, we will also receive our inheritance. Our, our restoration will be realized. But remember, church, our inheritance will not be some tiny piece of real estate in the Middle East. No, the promised land was a type under the old covenant. What the church is to inherit is the whole earth, we are told. A resurrected and renewed and restored world. That is our inheritance. One where sin is banished, death has died, and all of God's enemies have forever been put under the feet of Christ. That is what we look forward to. It's heaven on earth. And as you can imagine, when that day comes, there will be but one king, one savior, one ruler. And his rule, unlike now, will be uncontested. Every citizen will joyfully bow the knee before King Jesus. As the book of Revelation tells us, and I think no doubt alluding to the very last phrase there of Obadiah's prophecy, Revelation 11:15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and they shall reign forever and ever. Here's the deal, church. Many are, in fact, hopeless. And, and let's be honest and say that that is true not just of those out there, but even of many in the church. God's people, we too, can find ourselves hopeless. But this morning, we are invited to lift our heads. We are invited to, to, to lift our heads and look to the future, to look to the day when all the promises of God and His gospel and His grace will be fully and finally fulfilled on that wonderful day of Christ's return. Which leads me to believe that perhaps, just perhaps, our hopelessness is a symptom. The disease, you ask? Could it be amnesia? Could it be that the reason that so many Christians are hopeless is because we forget about the new heaven and the new earth? We get so wrapped up in and so wrapped up with all that this world offers that we have amnesia. We forget all that the Father has promised us, all that the Lord Jesus has bought for us, and all that the Holy Spirit keeps for us. I invite you to listen just very briefly to how J.I. Packer diagnoses all of this. He says, we have recast Christianity into a mold that stresses happiness above holiness. Blessings here above blessings hereafter. Health and wealth as God's best gifts. And death, especially early death, not as thankworthy deliverance from the miseries of a sinful world, but as the supreme disaster. This compels Packer to ask, is our Christianity out of shape? I would say, is it wonky? His answer, yes, it is. And then Packer concludes, and the basic reason is that we have lost the New Testament's two-world perspective that views the next life as more important than this one and understands life here as essentially preparation and training for the life hereafter. So here's my exhortation to you this morning, Christian. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes on Him, and at the same time, fix your eyes on that 
day. And, and I think that if we fix our eyes on Christ and we fix our eyes on that day, I think that you and I, we will find medicine for our soul. We will find a remedy for our hopelessness. Let's pray together. Father, it's one thing to know what we are supposed to do. It's one thing to say, do this, do that. It is quite another for our affections to be stirred, our minds to be renewed, our eyes to be opened, our wills to be enabled. And so we humble ourselves before you even now and pray that you would see fit the power of your spirit to do that work in us. It is you who works in us to work and will, to, to will and work according to your good pleasure. And so we're praying right now, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Fix our eyes on Christ. Fix our eyes on that day. Give us the hope of heaven now. And may that hope for heaven fuel us here in this present to be the men and women that you have called us to be. We pray these things for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. And all of God's people said, amen.